Hello, fellow Freedom Likers. Welcome to a Legally Drunk Tales from the Hill, a brand new segment we're starting here on the show. Lou, how you doing? I'm great. How are you, Jake? I am doing fantastic because today with season three, we're launching a new segment in which we are breaking down some of the more wacky, lesser known, fun little stories in political history. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Let's wind the clocks back to December 2nd, 1828. Our fledgling little republic has just elected a brand new president, Mr. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> My favorite. What do you know about Andrew Jackson? Oh, too much. Too much. <laughs> You're not wrong. He's the, he's, he's the woke. <laughs> Jam sucking sound. Well, you might change your tune a little bit on him today. We'll see how it goes. I initially started reading the story not liking Jackson, and then I kind of ended up liking him more towards the end. But we'll hmm. see. We'll see how it happens. We'll see uh, how it goes. So does the term spoils system mean anything to you? Ah, uh, yes. To the victor comes the spoils. It turns out Andrew Jackson was a big fan of this philosophy. Instead of appointing qualified government officials to cabinet positions, he appointed a series of toadies, cronies, and yes-men. One of those yes-men was a young man named John Eaton, who served as Jackson's Secretary of War. Eaton was actually a promising young senator from Tennessee. He was only 28 years old, which is interesting because A, it makes him the youngest senator in U.S. history, and B, this is because the Constitution requires you to be 30 years old to serve in the Senate. How did that happen? So I looked into it because I was also curious, and it turns out that back then, people just lied about their age constantly. But there is a possibility that he actually was 31. His biographer puts his age at 31, obviously being born three years prior to his reported date of birth. So we don't know the answer, but it's kind of assumed he just lied about his age. Serving as Jackson's Secretary of War, Eaton's loyalty to the man was more or less undying. This is because Eaton served under Jackson during the War of 1812 in several positions, and he, like many Americans, grew to worship Old Hickory. But before we go any further with Eaton himself, it's important that we talk about the Jackson White House. As you might recall, the White House itself was burned down during the War of 1812, we're only about a decade removed from that at this point, and each successive president contributed to rebuilding the White House. The problem was, each president would build the White House in their own style or their own likeness, which led to clashing decor almost everywhere. Jackson's predecessor and hated rival John Quincy Adams rebuilt several massive wings onto the White House, including a lot of more iconic rooms, such as the Lincoln bedroom. Not wishing to be outdone, Jackson himself ordered the finest, most ornate decor to be placed all over the White House. This included the finest silk curtains, the finest gold-plated china, and the finest paintings to be flown in from around the world. This led the White House to look much more like Versailles than the American seat of political power. However, the resemblance to Versailles wasn't just visual. It was also baked into the social structure of the Jackson White House. So one interesting thing about Jackson is that he was a widow. 
So there was no official first lady. So back then, the first lady had, I guess, kind of de facto duties in which they had to serve as the official hostess of the White House because there wasn't this like wide array of servants, I suppose. So the first lady was kind of the, I guess, Marie Antoinette of the whole White House system. So in Jackson's case, it was a young woman by the name of Emily Donaldson, who was Jackson's niece and daughter-in-law, strangely enough. Hmm. It was uh, his wife's niece, his late wife's niece, Mm -hmm. and his late wife niece also married his adopted son huh so a strange relationship but no i guess mixing of blood as it were yeah just personal personal mixing i guess right (laughs) first ladies back in the day like donaldson were basically in charge of running the white house they weren't really considered guests in the white house as more or less the modern first ladies might be First ladies back in the day essentially organized meetings, parties, and events of almost any nature. So the de facto first lady wielded a decent amount of influence in the day-to-day running of the White House. In order to curry Jackson's favor, that generally meant you had to curry Donaldson's favor. And Donaldson had a very elitist approach to how she conducted her duties as first lady. I'd like to I'd like to bring my first gripe about Jackson into this now is that he he, he was a populist on paper. <laughs> he was. So, he, I, I think he was a populist in spirit. philosophy as well, but I think he also just grew up with nothing. And you know what Jackson is? He's almost like the David Dobrik of politics in that, oh like, God. he struck it with, he basically fell ass backwards into striking it rich. But he said, like, all right, if I'm going to be rich, I'm going to take all my friends to the top with me, even mm-hmm. though they don't really, like, deserve it. Right. So, for example, Jackson, even though he was a widower, had a large extended family and he moved them all into the White House. And for his, like, I think it was like his inaugural ball, he basically just like let the public run wild. He did. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of his um, cabinet members also had their families in the White House as well. So cliques started to form mm. and it really became this, this social hierarchy in how close you could get to Jackson. And there were these petty power plays, which is what we're about to talk about and is really the catalysts for the story I'm telling today. Mm -hmm. So now that the scene is set, let's get back to John Eaton. Eaton married a young woman by the name of Margaret O'Neill. Even though her name was Margaret, she went by Peggy. Mm -hmm. And I'll be referring to her as Peggy for the rest of the segment. And she is more or less the subject of the story. Eaton was Peggy's second husband, as her previous husband had passed away. However, she and John had gotten married suspiciously close to when her previous husband had passed away. Mm. There were many rumors at the time that the two had been engaged in an affair, and some people even implied that she might have had something to do with her previous husband's death. Oh, like Carol Baskin style. Exactly right. It all comes full circle. It does. Now, it's important to note that these rumors were largely meritless, except for the fact that 
Back in the day, when somebody passed away, there was considered a quote-unquote customary mourning period, and this was a barely strictly enforced social norm. Well, especially with like a White House official too. Like, that's right. pretty public. You're very publicly not abiding by like the social norms. Right. This was bombshell news to the Versailles atmosphere of the White House back in the day. Peggy would enter the White House very, 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 very unpopular. Just about every single woman in the White House would snub her, including our de facto First Lady, Emily Donaldson. This would be to the point where John Eaton and his wife would be uninvited and completely blacklisted from every single social event going on in Washington. This made Jackson understandably furious, as his cabinet was basically now not working together on anything, almost exclusively due to who one of them decided to marry. Now, there were factions that began to form. But before I get into one of those factions, I want to get in a little bit to some of the reasons historians think that the women of the White House actually hated Peggy. A lot of people believe it wasn't necessarily just due to her breaking that social norm. That was really just the cover for why they hated her. They hated her because she was an educated woman and she held political opinions, if you could believe that, mm. <laughs> which was considered not at all the place of a woman in 1828. It's dangerous. That's ex that's literally what they thought. She was a she was a societal danger, and she was gonna kind of turn she's a witch politics on its head. Like that's not unlike what they thought at the time, to be honest. So as I had mentioned, factions had begun to form. Not only did Emily Donaldson not like Peggy, Emily Donaldson, even though she was the de facto first lady, that de facto element of it made her not necessarily the most powerful woman. No, that distinction belonged to Vice President John C. Calhoun's wife, Floride Calhoun. Her yes, name that is, is her Floride. actual name. It's not it spelled like the stuff they put in toothpaste, but I believe that's how it's pronounced. Okay. Floride and her husband would lead the anti-Peggy faction, and they would be joined by just about every single cabinet member's wife in the White House. Fortunately for Peggy, her main supporter was Andrew Jackson himself. Andrew Jackson sympathized with her, largely in part due to the fact that there were many rumors who Jackson believed were started by John Quincy Adams, although that's not historically the case, mm. that Jackson had been in a very similar situation where his wife and him had gotten married prior to the legal ending of his wife's previous marriage. Mm -hmm. And okay. so he thought of Peggy as somewhat of a kindred spirit. He also looked at Eaton as a little bit of a protege in some respect. There was another big supporter for the pro-Peggy faction, and that was the Secretary of the State at the time. Do you happen to know who that was? Secretary of, the S of State under Jackson. It wasn't Van Buren, was it? It was Van Buren. No! No! That was a guess. That was a total guess. So he... so. His other position, he was vice president then. In, we'll get to in that Jackson's in a minute. Second term. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. 
great. But yes, the Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren, was in the pro-Peggy faction. He was a widower himself, and I believe he was the only cabinet member who was unmarried. So he didn't really care about the petty politics, and he just thought Peggy was a nice person, and he supported her. It's worth noting that despite Van Buren being the Secretary of State, he's not looked upon fondly by Jackson. However, in sticking up for Peggy, Van Buren's stature is elevated in the eyes of Jackson. Meanwhile, Jackson and Calhoun are drifting further, further, and further apart in politics. One can't begin to talk about the politics of this period without bringing up regionalism. You see, Andrew Jackson was one of the first major politicians, with the exception of Henry Clay, to be from the West, meaning he didn't really have a huge stake in the North versus South divide. Calhoun at the time wasn't just a Southern politician, but the Southern politician very much in favor of slavery and states' rights. There were a number of political issues at the time that elevated these tensions. So one of the big things was the tariff of abominations. I vaguely remember that. Basically what it did was it was a protectionist tariff in order to, I, I think that might be an oxymoron, but <laughs> it's a protectionist tariff. It's not, it's not an oxymoron, it's redundant. Right. Fair any enough. Tariff is, any tariff is protectionist. That's what I meant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But either way, it essentially promoted the industrialized North and their economy at the expense of the rural South. So the South basically had to pay more now to buy Northern goods than to buy European goods. So <laughs> it was good for the North and bad for the South, very plainly. So Jackson was kind of supposed to be a neutral arbiter between the two and not really have a stake in it. But mm -hmm. Calhoun fought Jackson vehemently on this because it was bad for the South. They also butted heads over the nullification crisis that resulted from the tariff of abominations, if you remember that one. Yes. Isn't that just where states started ignoring the law? Correct. So it was this legal doctrine. So nullification was this legal doctrine that states claimed that they had the right to essentially just ignore federal law that they didn't mm -hmm. like. So the Supreme Court resolved that. But that was a bitter, bitter divide between Calhoun and Jackson. Jackson, obviously, being the president, doesn't want his authority usurped that way. Mm -hmm. And believe that nullification was bullshit, which it is. And <laughs> Calhoun clearly supported the state's rights aspect of it, as it would not only be good for the South uh, economically, it would also basically bar the federal government from being able to do anything regarding slavery. Right. Without a constitutional amendment. So, you know who was on board with all of these policies? Van Buren? Our resident New Yorker, Martin Van Buren. Mm -hmm. While the cabinet and Congress remained divided over Jackson's policies, Van Buren, being a northerner, fully supported them. This even further elevated Van Buren in Jackson's eyes. So all of a sudden you have this quote-unquote nobody former governor of New York who is really currying favor with Jackson and this jackass... Vice President Calhoun, whose wife <laughs> is causing his entire cabinet to not work, he is plummeting in Jackson's eyes. 
<laughs> this is really where we see the quote-unquote petticoat or Eaton affair come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, the controversy over Peggy is completely barring the cabinet from working together, even really meeting in person. They're all at each other's throats. So, Jackson loved to ride horses. Van Buren also loved to ride horses. One day, they're both riding horses together and they come up with a plan. Eaton and Van Buren would both resign from their positions, and then Andrew Jackson would force every other cabinet member out. Those who were in the pro-Peggy camp would be given cushy, 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 cushy new positions. Those who were against Peggy, Jackson told them to go to hell. Why did it take them resigning for this to work? Why couldn't Jackson just fire everyone? So Jackson doesn't necessarily have the authority to fire people, like to fire everybody. Wait, so the president so, can't fire the cabinet members? So he you're also them. talking about secretaries in certain positions. So like the postmaster general, for example, is head of an independent organization. So they mm -hmm. serve a term. So uh, was that even was, was did did that rule about postmaster general date back that long? I thought that yeah, was recent. Yeah. So the postmaster okay. general, I believe, was actually the only one who didn't leave. Mm hmm. It really just kind of gave Jackson cover. Mm -hmm. So those two powerful members of the cabinet leaving, and remember the cabinet was way smaller back then, mm -hmm. basically gave Jackson the excuse to, okay, we're just going to hit the reset button on this now. As per the agreement, Eaton would move back to Tennessee where he'd be elected to the House of Representatives and then later appointed by Jackson as the governor of Florida. So he and Peggy lived out their life of luxury in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Just like another special someone near exactly and dear to our right. heart. Van Buren was to be made the ambassador to England, which was a really important role at the time. However, this required confirmation by the Senate, a Senate that was divided right down the middle on the issue. So much so that when it came time to vote, it resulted in a tie. When there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, dude, what happens? The vice president is the tiebreaker. Mr. John C. Calhoun. <laughs> and what does he do? He votes against Van Buren. <laughs> His own one, vice president. One last middle finger to Jackson. But people, it, it, this the whole thing completely backfired. Wait, was that at, so was that still like during the time when the, the runner up it was not vice president. And so Calhoun didn't necessarily have a vested interest in like being it nice to so it I thought it was it was not because. OK, so remember, then Jackson would have been JQA's <laughs> vice president and JQA in right. turn would have been Jackson's vice president. Mm -hmm. And that's also going to be uh, confirmed by the next thing I'm about to tell you in a minute. This betrayal by Calhoun backfired greatly, so much so to the point where the Jacksonian party would dump Calhoun for Jackson's second term and replace him with none other than Martin Van Buren. Calhoun went back to being a crotchety old man in the Senate. I think he beat someone up with his cane at one point on the Senate yes, floor. He beat, was it he who beat Charles Sumner? over slavery or was that someone else i think it was him but i'm not positive okay gotta jump in quickly just mm -hmm. so we can clear uh calhoun's name 
No, it was Preston Brooks. Who ah, Preston Brooks. See, so, it, so that tracks more because Preston Brooks was younger. And I was thinking like, why would a crotchety old man like beat the shit out of another senator? Well, to me, I, I was always told that he did it with a cane. So the old man thing kind of tracked with me there. Right. Now that makes sense. Calhoun would remain in the Senate a bitter old man, and Van Buren would not only ascend to the vice presidency for Jackson's second term, Jackson was so popular, he was able to play kingmaker and make Van Buren the president in 1836. To Van Buren, he was the eighth president. (laughs) Oh man, that backfired. All this because... Van Buren stuck up for a lady against a group of petty jerks. That's so pretty, that's that's pretty cool. So that's the story of how one guy marrying a questionably promiscuous woman who probably wasn't promiscuous but rather just was an educated person holding political opinions and thus flouting society's conventions catapulted Martin Van Buren from being kind of a nobody in the cabinet all the way to Jackson's right-hand man and all the way to the eventual presidency, which he would only serve one term and get smoked because he doesn't know how to manage an economy. (laughs) Like another thing that when I read this story wasn't really touched on that kind of butterfly effect changes history here. The Democratic Party, as I mentioned a couple points, was really the party of Jackson. So once Jackson left, there was really a question of what was going to happen. It was Van Buren who galvanized the Democratic Party into an actual political force with ideology. Mm -hmm. So who knows what happens there if Aiton doesn't marry Peggy? Uh, It's it's interesting, too, because Van Buren is from New York. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Democrats, I mean, it wasn't quite as, I think, the political parties weren't like quite as tribal as they are today, but like to an extent, I would have felt like a New Yorker, like really galvanizing a party that at the time was known for being so pro-slavery is a bit odd. So it's almost weird to say, but the slavery divide in like the 1830s, like obviously it existed, but it wasn't as stark as it would become until in, in like the 1850s when you'd see the Republicans start forming. So mm. it was really a lot of the divide was one just over Jackson himself. He was that mm. divisive a figure. You had literally a pro Jackson and anti Jackson party. And the other divide was really over It was over protectionism and economics, which kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So Jackson's big thing was wanting to destroy the bank, which he did. And because of the panic of 1837, everyone's like, oh, shit, that was a horrible idea. What do we do now? Oh, man. I mean, without getting too without getting on too much of a tangent, Jackson abolished Jackson abolished the National Bank. Mm -hmm. Was it ever reinstated before the Fed? Or was that the next time a central bank came came into play at all? You know, I'm not sure about that, but 
I don't know. Maybe we could do the next story about the Panic of eighteen thirty-seven. Who knows? There were the thing is, like I remember in history class, man, like those panics. It started to become Boy Who Cried Wolf. It's like, oh, great, two years. There's another panic. <laughs> panic of eighteen thirty-seven. Wasn't there like a panic in the eighteen forties? Wasn't there a panic in the eighteen fifties? Like, it was just like, you, you know, it, it was going to happen every at a pretty steady interval up until basically nineteen thirty-two. Or well, economics wasn't even really like an academic field of study back then. So, it proved no, how much just, we knew. They were just figuring it out. Yeah. But anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the segment. Let us know what you want to see next from Tales from the Hill. And until next time, we're out.